All right, well, good morning again. It's so good to see all of you. Hope you're having a wonderful weekend. Glad you're here. Glad those of you at home are joining us online. Uh, one of the things that Nikki mentioned, it kind of got cut off, but uh, uh, yeah, last night, our 562 Night Market, want to thank all of you who donated supplies, helped volunteer, prayed for the event. A lot of new families came out, a lot of new kids. Uh, it was really encouraging, blessed to, to see all of that. And uh, Tina, Steph, uh, did an amazing job organizing, planning, executing the event. Well, we are journeying through the Old Testament prophets. And uh, what we're really examining, if you've been with us for the past few weeks, what we're really looking at is uh, God's relationship with his people, Israel. And as we've been saying over and over, right, the more we can understand God's heart for Israel, the, the better we understand God's heart for us. Now, if you remember early on, and this is like early as in five years ago, God establishes a covenant with Israel, right? A contract. And in the covenant, he, he in essence says to them, uh, Israel, if you trust me, if you obey me, if you live according to my ways, which are good and righteous and perfect, um, life is going to be really good. You're going to be blessed. There's just no better way to put it than that. I'm going to, to, to reward you, bless you. However, if you don't trust me, if you turn from me, if you reject me, if you live according to your ways, life is going to be really hard. You're going to struggle. You're going to suffer. You're going to experience my, my judgment, my punishment. And for much of Israel's history, what we see them doing perpetually is distrusting God, turning from God, rejecting God, and ultimately chasing after other gods. And it's in this context that God is speaking to Israel through the prophets. And early on, if you remember, God's messages to his people were pretty harsh. God puts a spotlight on Israel's unfaithfulness, their idolatry, adultery, selfishness, greed, injustice. And he basically tells them, uh, I'm going to punish you. I'm going to judge you. Things are going to get really hard. But then eventually, which we've seen in the past couple of weeks, the, the tone begins to change and the emphasis begins to be on God's promise of comfort, of renewal, of transformation, of, of ultimately blessing. Uh, a few weeks ago, or actually a month or so ago, I was at my older, older daughter Carly's volleyball game. And she's just getting into volleyball, and I don't know anything about volleyball, so forgive me if I butcher this illustration. But at one point in the match, the opposing team, she serves the ball. It's hard. It's fast. Our kids can't even react. It's an ace. Our coach calls a timeout, pulls the girls aside, has them line up on the sideline, and they start running lines in the middle of a match. And he basically communicates to them, and I don't know, you know, Communicates them, that should never happen. And whenever it does, we're running lines, no matter what. Well, after the timeout, the girls come back and line up, and the very next play, play opposing player serves the ball, it's hard, it's fast, our kids can't even react, ace. So I'm waiting for another timeout, but this time, nothing happens. No timeout, no lines, and I'm thinking apparently he changed his mind. Well, God tells Israel, even though you've been unfaithful, even though you reject me, even though you turn from me, even though you're hard-hearted, I'm going to 
bring you comfort. I'm going to bless you. And initially it seems like, did, did God just change his, his mind? Because how does God, a holy, righteous God, in light of the original contract, how does he bless and favor and delight in a broken, sinful people? And as we'll see in our passage this morning, what, what God begins to tell Israel is that the way he's going to do that is through an anointed servant a Messiah, a Savior, who's going to rescue them, redeem them, bring them back to Him. Now, throughout the Old Testament, there's different threads, nuances, in terms of what this Messiah, this servant, would, would be like. On one hand, this anointed servant, he's going to be a mighty king in the line of King David, like King David, who's going to rule and reign, but far better, far greater than any other king. He's going to rule over all nations, all kingdoms. He's going to put all his enemies under his feet once and for all. And this is an aspect of the Messiah that Israel would really cling on to. They'd really embrace. But on the other hand, there was also this idea, which we're going to focus on this morning, of this servant being humble and meek, who's going to willingly, joyfully suffer on Israel's behalf. And perhaps one of the clearest descriptions of that is in Isaiah chapter 53. So Isaiah chapter 53, we're going to read verses 1 through 12. You can look up on the screen. Isaiah writes, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer, and though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. 
Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Now there's a lot to unpack from this section. I think it's safe to say that each verse could be an entire sermon by itself, and it'd still be hard to, to cover all of it. So I'm going to do my gist to, to give you a summary in 60 seconds. What God is basically telling Israel is, I'm going to raise up a servant among you, and he is going to turn you back to me. And the way he's going to do that is by taking on your sin, your transgressions, your iniquities. He's going to pay the debt that you owe, endure the punishment you deserve, so that you can have peace with God, life with God. He's going to be from God, but he's going to rise up from among you. He's going to be simple and plain, nothing special or extraordinary in terms of appearance or status. He's going to be sinless and perfect, yet he's going to be rejected and shunned, hated and despised. He is going to experience pain and suffering, oppression and infliction. He's going to be pierced and crushed. God is going to pour out all of your sin upon him, and pour out his wrath, punish him on our behalf. He is going to be the sacrifice and the offering for humanity's sin once and for all, so that anyone who turns to him will be justified, forgiven, and saved. This is the heart of God towards his people. This is the God that we get to have a relationship, a God that we get to worship and serve. Now, a simple question arises is, is why does God tell Israel all of this? And an obvious answer is to, to strengthen them, to encourage them. In the preceding section, uh, look what he says in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7 to 12. It says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they will shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Right, so Isaiah tells Israel that the reason why God is informing them of this secret of what he's going to one day do, the reason he's going to ruin the surprise by telling them now is so that they would rejoice. So that they would have hope and confidence burst into songs of joy together. Verse 9 says, verse 11, 12, Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Come out from it and be pure, you who carry the articles of the Lord's house. But you will not leave in haste or go in flight, for the Lord will go before you. The God of Israel will be your rear guard. 
Now, in this language is obvious shades of the, the Exodus. And God is reminding Israel of what he has done, and he is telling them what he will one day do. And he is promising both a physical blessing as well as a spiritual blessing. Physically, he's going to free them from exile one day. He's going to bring them back home. Relationally, he's with them. He's for them. That they are pure in his sight, worthy of his favor and his blessing. And what God is inviting them to consider is to remember all of that I've done. Think about all that I'm going to do. And the invitation, the exhortation is to rejoice. Rejoice for all the above. Now it's pretty straightforward. But the challenge with this is the simple fact that Isaiah is telling Israel this about 150-some years before they would be released from exile. About 700-some years until the Messiah, Jesus, would actually show up on the scene. Which means that, that Israel as a nation, as a people group, they're going to one day see this promise fulfilled. But there are a whole lot of Israelites, a whole lot of individuals, who would never get to see any of it. And thus the hope, the confidence, the joy that they would experience or could experience would have to be rooted in faith. And that's exactly what God desires. Faith is the confidence in what we hope for, the assurance of what we do not see. You see, how Israel would respond, how they would feel about their situation, about their future, how they would feel about each other, how they would feel about God's instructions would be a reflection of how they feel about who God was, all that he has done, what he said he would do. A couple of weeks ago, our family got to, to go to Hawaii for nine days for a family vacation, just relaxing recreation, uh, how to blast, a lot of fun, can't wait till we get to go back. Uh, when we were leaving to, to go there, uh, we had took a, a 7 a.m. flight, which means that we had to, to be at the airport by 5 a.m., leave our house by 4.30, get the kids up by, by 4 a.m., and, and we kind of do this frequently whenever we travel. And, you know, for whatever reason, and this is really profound, and I can't figure out why, but for whatever reason, whenever our kids have to wake up early in the morning, to go on vacation, it's significantly different than when they have to wake up in the morning to go to school. Like, I, I don't understand why. Right, it's the, it's the same bed, it's the same amount of sleep, if anything, it's less sleep because they're up late. They wake up feeling the same fatigue, it's the same morning routine, go to the bathroom, brush your teeth, get dressed, but for whatever reason, they're just way more excited, less grumpy, no complaining, Hopeful, excited, right? Because we know, they know. They believe that when they get into the car that morning, it's not going to take them to school. Right? It's taking them to the airport, taking them to, to Hawaii. You see, what, what God is inviting Israel to do is to be hopeful, to be excited, to be joyful, 
because of what he will one day do. He's in essence telling them, even though you are in captivity, my grace will set you free. Even though you are struggling and suffering, I will make all things new. Even though you are hated and despised, I'm about to show you the depth of my love. By faith, you can be hopeful and confident and joyful. And it is your hope and it is your confidence and it is your joy that will ultimately demonstrate your faith. How Israel feels about their current situation in light of their current circumstances, how they feel about each other, how they feel about God's instructions, that's an ultimate reflection of how they feel about God, how they feel about all that he's done and all that he will one day do. The obvious question is, how would Israel respond? Would they be filled with hope and confidence and joy And would that joy inspire turning back to God, trusting God, loving God, worshiping God, serving God, being faithful to God? Would it inspire gratitude, generosity, graciousness? And in many ways, that is a question that is still being answered to this day. But the one thing we do know, the one thing that was made clear then, the one thing that is made clear now, is that God never gives up on his people that God has provided a way for his people, for us to have a relationship with him where our sin will never get in the way of his favor and his blessing. And that anyone can have this relationship with him if they genuinely, sincerely want it. Now for us today, we know that the Messiah has come, that Jesus did exactly what The prophets, Isaiah, said he would do. That he took on our sin. That he paid the debt we owed. He gave us peace with God. And because of it, God is with us. He's for us. He dwells within us. He constantly works for our good. He's preparing a place for us to spend all eternity. A place where there is no more sin, no more suffering, no more pain, no more death. And the question I would like us to consider this morning is how do we feel about all that? How do we feel about the gospel? How do we feel about everything that God has done? Everything he says he will one day do? And how do we know we actually feel what we think we feel? A few months ago, uh, the four of us, our family, were sitting around the table. It was during the NBA Finals, so the Phoenix Suns were in there. And Amber, who grew up in Arizona, she, she made a comment somewhere in the conversation of just how much she's always loved the Phoenix Suns. And one of our girls, I don't remember which one, she turns to Amber and she says, all right, name five players on the Phoenix Suns. Chris Paul, Devin Booker, that DeAndre guy, Charles Barkley, Dan Marley? See, sometimes what we think we feel, what we actually feel aren't always the same. How do we feel about the gospel? 
And to be able to answer that question, we, we need to consider how, how are we feeling about life? How are we feeling about our current situation, our current circumstances? How are we feeling about one another? How do we feel about church? How do we feel about worship, serving, giving? How do we feel about the poor, the needy, the lost? How do we feel about God's word? Prayer, solitude, quiet times, devotion. Now let's say, for, for instance, and this is hypothetical, so completely fiction, but let's say for a moment that somehow God tells you, promises you, guarantees you that one year from today, you're going to win the lottery. Like billions. Some Powerball jackpot. Enough money where you would never have to think about money again. Kids, grandkids, great-grandkids. Your legacy set for life. Not today, not tomorrow, not a week from now, a month from now, but one year from now. Now, I know it's, it's hypothetical, so none of us really know how that would feel, but how would we feel? Now, my guess is if that were to happen, most of us would be feeling pretty good about life. Regardless of our current situation, regardless of our current circumstances, we would be somewhat hopeful, somewhat excited because of what was going to happen. Perhaps we'd be a little less stressed about work and career, a little less worried about our kids' grades, their test scores, what schools they get into. Perhaps we'd be a little more grateful to God, feeling a little bit more generous, gracious towards other people. Even though our life today would be no different than it was yesterday, our life tomorrow would be no different than it was today, we'd be feeling pretty good because of what's to come. And if that's true about something like money, which we know in and of itself can't guarantee happiness, how much more true should that be, could that be, about the gospel, about all that God has done and all that he says he will do. How are we doing when it comes to things like hope and confidence and joy? How are we doing when it comes to strength and courage? Do they inspire gratitude, graciousness, generosity? A year and a half ago when the pandemic first happened and we were forced to quarantine and shut down, you know, aside from you know, the nervousness and, and kind of the anxiousness of all the uncertainty back then, you know, one of the things that we as pastors felt hopeful about, one of the things that we had shared with all of you, one of the things we heard other pastors saying, was that perhaps this was an opportunity for, for a lot of us to, to kind of reset. For those of us who, who had the, the, the ability, the privilege, sort of say, who had the ability to, to stay at home comfortably, safely, slow down, perhaps that was an opportunity to be able to kind of hit the pause button on life, to, to step back and just reassess the life we had been living, to be able to consider what's really important, what really mattered to us. 
to be able to discern whether we would continue living life the way we had, whether we wanted to do less of some things and more of other things. To decide accordingly. And early on, I, I saw this in, with youth sports, specifically basketball, at least in my circle, where kids who had been practicing, training several times a week, playing games virtually every single weekend, the pandemic gave them an opportunity, their families an opportunity to kind of step back and ask themselves the question, how do I really feel about basketball? And after a month or two, there were some kids who were like, what was I thinking? I don't even like basketball. So they hung up their shoes and they've yet to touch a basketball or step on a court since. There were other kids who after a couple of weeks were like, I miss basketball. And now I even have more time to play more basketball. And I don't know how, but they found a way early on to practice more, to train more, to even play more. And what we see happening amongst youth with sports and hobbies and activities is also happening for, for many adults. When it comes to work, when it comes to their jobs, career. I was reading an article recently on CNN, and some economists are calling this season the golden age for the American worker. The golden age for the American worker because a record number of Americans are quitting their jobs refusing to return to their old ones, looking for new ones. Look what one economist says uh, in that article. It says the American worker is now confident that he or she has the bargaining power and can obtain a reasonable wage and have influence over the shape of working conditions. That bargaining power comes from their willingness to quit jobs they don't like and look for new ones. And this shift is not merely centered on simple economics, but a broader reassessment around quality of life and purpose. In other words, what Americans are asking themselves is, how do I really feel about my job? And they're responding accordingly. And what economists say is that this isn't new. This is actually quite common after difficult seasons. Things like wars, depressions, and in our case, a pandemic. Now, if that's happening when it comes to things like sports, if it's happening when it comes to things like jobs and careers, I think it's safe to assume that it's happening in churches. It's happening amongst Christians, churchgoers, attendees where we are asking the question, whether intentionally or unintentionally, consciously or subconsciously, how do I really feel about faith? How do I really feel about God and Jesus, all that he's done, all that he says he will do? And you see, to answer that question is not something we can merely do intellectually or theologically, but it's a question that requires us to examine our thoughts, our emotions, our choices, our decisions. How am I doing when it comes to my relationship with God? I mean, what do my daily interactions really look like? How much time am I spending with them? What things am I sharing? 
What's he saying? What am I hearing? Is God a priority? In light of all my relationships in life, with people, with commitments, with activities, where does God stand in all of that? Right, if someone were to observe my life, if they were to know my thoughts, if they were to see all my choices, all my decisions, how I spend my time, how I use my energy, how, where I place my resources, would they walk away convinced that God is my priority? How do I really feel about the gospel, about everything that God has done, everything that he's doing, everything that he says he will do? Now, as we close our time this morning, as we move back into a time of worship and reflection, let us consider who God is. Consider all that he's done, all that he says he will do. And let us consider where we stand in our relationship with him. To invite the Spirit to speak. To show us how we are truly doing. And if you come to a place where you begin to perhaps recognize that maybe you are not where you thought you were. Maybe faith has been a struggle. Maybe the gospel hasn't been a focus. Maybe God hasn't been a priority. Then remember this. Jesus came to die for your sins. He paid for your punishment, pierced for your transgressions, crushed for your iniquity so that you could have peace with God. By his wounds, you are healed. That our relationship with God is not about what we have to do for him. But it's about what he has done for us. What he's doing for us. What he will do for us. And because of that, no matter how sinful you are, no matter how broken, no matter how imperfect, no matter how far you've turned away, you can be hopeful. You can be confident. You can rejoice because of what God has done. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you. We come before you to acknowledge that you are God and that we are not that you are more loving, more gracious, more merciful and forgiving than we will ever truly comprehend. So God, as we consider who you are to us, where we stand, God, I pray that you would speak, that you would reveal our hearts, not so that we would feel shameful, condemned, but so that we would know your grace so that we would feel confident in turning to you, returning to you. So, God, we invite you to, to move, invite you to speak. Thank you for the grace and the love that you have given us. Thank you 
for your servant. Thank you for the Messiah. Thank you for Jesus. That we get to, to sit here, to be in your presence, and to know your heart. So we give you our, our praise. We give you our worship. In Jesus' name, amen.